or fights or, or battles. There's some kind of, not sure what the curiosity is, but uh, doing Young Life and working out at high schools, there was uh, a display of Olympic-like speed if there was a high school fight. I mean, I don't know how word spread that quickly. It was faster than any Twitter or text could have ever ma- ma- managed. But if there was a fight somewhere on campus, of course, you never saw it because the time you got there, it was all over. But, I mean, it was amazing how quickly people somehow wanted to gather in and see what was going on. And whether it's something that's that, that's that simple or it's like an, the epic battle. Remember the epic battle that was shown in the movie 300? The, the Spartans, the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae in, in Greece that held off this huge army, Persian army that was coming. And so that's well documented, well known, filmed. And just the names, Waterloo, the American Revolution, Gettysburg, D-Day. Just hearing the names somehow sparks this uh, curiosity. Wars are endlessly studied. They're written about. They're remembered. They're, in some cases, reenacted. J.C. Ryle was a pastor in England in the 1800s, and he says this about another war, which is far greater and with and has far greater importance than any other war ever waged by man. And this is what he says. It's a warfare which concerns not two or three nations, but every Christian man and woman born into the world. It's a spiritual warfare which everyone who would be saved must fight about his soul. This warfare, however, is a thing which many know nothing. Yet it is real and true as any war the world has seen. It has its hand-to-hand combat, its wounds, its sieges and assaults, its victories and defeats. Above all, it has consequences, consequences which are awful and tremendous and most peculiar. The consequences when the fight is over are unchangeable and eternal. Ryle is really reflecting a, a theme throughout the Bible. It's not hard to think about uh, verses that have to do with fighting. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6. If there was ever like a, a Mel Gibson moment for the Apostle Paul in Braveheart. Remember, he's, he's up and down the line and he's got this very dramatic. All the guys know it. All the girls are like, I don't know. I don't see Braveheart. But all the guys know, you know, there's this, this there's this big war that's about ready to go on. And, and somebody's got to sort of come up to the line and and have this great impassioned speech. And this is how I picture Paul in front of Timothy, this aging apostle talking to his protege, who's now leading the charge in Ephesus, this church that he planted. And now he's planted his protege there and he's writing back. And I think it has that sort of feel when he says this. But you, man of God, flee from all temptation. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God and of Jesus Christ, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God. The blessed and only ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one else has seen or can see to him be honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. 
And it's like, amen, Timothy, you got that? I mean, charge, let's, let's get in the fight, let's engage the battle. And the word fight that Paul uses, the, the Greek word means agony. And so you get a sense of the kind of fight that Paul is asking Timothy to join him in. It's one that's going to be agonizing. It's one that's going to require us total attention. It's one that's not going to be easy. And so we're not surprised in Paul's second letter to Timothy and his last written letter. He picks up the same thing. And you'll be familiar with the verse. He says to Timothy, the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I'm, I'm finishing this race. I've kept the faith. Paul's words are just an echo of Jesus's words in Luke 13. When he says this, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I will tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus is apparently teaching somewhere and whether he gets interrupted or there's just a Q&A session, we don't know. But somebody in the crowd asked Jesus this question. Are there just a few people going to be saved? And Jesus response. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. And the word strive is the same Greek word for fight that Paul uses. Agonize to get through this gate. In other words, Jesus is telling this person, hey, you don't need to pay attention to the number. You need to pay attention to yourself. Are you striving? Are you agonizing? Are you fighting to get through this narrow gate? And no matter the number, only those who fight get in. One commentator on this verse says this. Many will wish. Many will desire. But they will not fight. And because they will not agonize for the narrow gate, they will not get in. So our text this morning, Peter doesn't use the word fight. He uses the word war. And he's our pastor this morning. He's informing us of what we have come to hear. And that is we're in a war for our soul. Verse 11. And the rest of this morning, I just want to make some observations about this war against our soul. Some of these observations could be sermon series, so I'll have to go through some of them quickly. But as, as I thought about this phrase, it just sort of stuck in my mind. I thought, how, how can we understand this war against our soul? First observation, the Christian life is a life of warfare. Now, stop and just let's just stop for a moment and ask yourself. Do you believe that? The Christian life is a life of warfare. I mean, I'm just telling you, I think it is, but you you make your own judgment. Do you think it's a life of warfare? And if you would say yes, then my question would my following question would be, does your life reflect a wartime mentality? 
if you would say, yes, I believe it is a warfare, it is a war against my soul, then if we looked at your life, would your life reflect that you're in a, a wartime mentality? John Piper writes these words. Most people do not believe this in their heart. They show by their priorities and casual approach to things that they believe we're in peacetime, not in wartime. In wartime, we are alert, we're armed, there is austerity, yet few people think we are in a war that is greater than World War II. Few reckon that Satan is, as much a, war, is a much worse enemy than any earthly foe. No, many Christians have stopped believing we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. Peter is informing his first congregation that they're in a war for their soul. Paul is telling Timothy, you've got to fight the good fight. Luke, in Luke, Jesus is telling this man who's asking the question, you've got to strive, you've got to agonize, you've got to fight to get into the narrow gate. And Peter and Paul and Jesus all understand that they're involved in the war. But my question to you this morning, my first question, and must be the first question is, do you think you're in a war? Or do you live your life in a kind of a peacetime mentality? See, it's difficult to implement safety. It's, in, it's, it's difficult to in, implement austerity measures or to take up arms if you don't think you're in a war. Two illustrations from C.S. Lewis may be helpful here. You're probably familiar with the screw tape letters. You know, these are the letters from the uncle named Screwtape. This is senior devil who's writing advice back to his nephew named Wormwood. And Wormwood is, is terror, terror, terrorizing this uh, human. And so Wormwood, Screwtape is giving Worm, Wormwood some um, advice. How do, you, how do you needle this guy down here on earth? So it's a, a way that Lewis can kind of get at uh, the war against us. And Screwtape writes to... His nephew Wormwood saying one of our best weapons against the soul is contented worldliness. In other words, to, to, to Wormwood, he would be saying, just make sure uh, your person pretty much has what they want or make them believe they're very near to having what they want. And if you can make people believe that they have what they want or they're very near to what they have, then, then they, never may, they may never wake up to the reality that there's a war against their soul. And one of Satan's most effective poise is contented worldliness. Lewis says it in my second illustration in a much more imaginative way in the Chronicles of Narnia. In the silver chair. I don't know if you remember this one, but Prince Rillian is in. He's been captive uh, by this. He's been made captive by this queen and he's sort of captivated by the queen. And he's also held in captivity by this silver chair. And he's he's underneath a spell. And so Aslan has sent these three people to go free Prince Rillian. And they're used to scrub and Jill and this frog like figure named Puddleglum, which is one of the most beloved sort of Lewis characters. And the three of them go on this journey and they finally they have to go underneath the ground in sort of this whole underground world. 
and they have to free the prince. And they finally get to the prince. They free the prince and they and the prince wakes up and he realizes I've been I've been enchanted. I've been underneath this spell. I, I haven't even realized what the real world is. And thank you to these three rescuers who have come to rescue me. And at that moment, when they realize they're they're really in reality now, the queen walks in. And she consents that that the spell is being broken. If you remember what she does, so so powerful, she takes she's green. So she takes some green powder and she throws it on a little flame. And it and Lewis says it has a sweet, drowsy smell. And she walks around and she begins to whisper and she has a little sort of mandolin or something. She begins to strum slowly. And all four characters begin to fall underneath her enchantment. And Lewis, in such a a classic line, he says this, it didn't come into their heads that they were being enchanted. The magic was at its full strength. And of course, listen to this, the more enchanted you get, the more certain you feel that you are not enchanted at all. The more enchanted you get, the more certain you're not enchanted at all. You see, the first question we have to ask ourselves, have we fallen underneath this enchantment? Have we fallen for sort of a worldly contentedness? It's it's very possible to fall under the enchantments of this world And never realize that you're in a war for your soul. I got to say this because this is really one of my favorite moments in the book. No extra charge on this for the sermon. But do you remember how they they break the enchantment? Remember this? If you C.S. Lewis fans. Puddleglum, who's a frog and has got webbed feet, he can sense he's getting enchanted and he sticks his foot on the fire. He doesn't have a shoe or anything. And it starts to smell bad and it breaks the enchantment. And Lewis says this in really a great line. It says he says this. There's nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. It's possible God could use pain to shock you out of enchantment. And you would look at your pain and be very thankful for that pain. That it woke me up to something that was a much bigger reality. Yes, I have this pain, but it's it's awakened me to this other problem. And I'm so thankful that I haven't just been let loose and just drifted down the river of contented worldliness. But God continues to shout in painful moments to say, pay attention. There's something much more important going on here. There's a war against your soul and you've got to get involved. You've got to strive to get through that narrow gate. And sometimes to get our attention, mercifully, he uses pain. One comment before I move on to the second point, and specifically addressed to parents of younger children. If you have the English prayer book and you looked it up, uh, what gets said uh, at a baptism of a child, especially an infant, 
It says this, we receive this child into the congregation and give them the sign of the cross and token that hereafter they shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of the crucified Christ and manfully to fight under his banner against sin, the world and the devil. We're receiving this child, we're giving them this sign and we're praying that this one 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 day this child would confess that Jesus is the Christ and that he or she would manfully fight underneath the banner against sin, against the world and against the devil. Now, I'm assuming that's what every parent wants. They want their child to grow up and understand, hey, what banner am I underneath? What I what kind of fight do I need to take on? But my, my question for the parents is, until that day arrives, do, do you see yourself in the frontline war for the soul and eternal destiny of your own child? Is that how you view the role you have as the, the Powells came up and, and had uh, Charlie baptized? What's, what's their main role here? Their main role is they're representing the front line for Charlie when he can't represent that line for himself. They're the ones who understand that Charlie's soul is on the line. And they have to wage war for Charlie until he can grow up and he can manfully fight that fight himself. And of course, he's going to have people around him. Do you see how important that is if you're a, a parent of a child? You're, you've got to stand and you've got to create a barrier. You've got to wage a war on their behalf until they're able to wage that war by themselves. And it matters very much how you view your role as a parent. If you view your role primarily as a child, raising your child to get good grades. To make sure they make the travel athletic squad. Make sure they get into Carolina. Or if you have loftier goals, Furman. I always say that. You know, to have a wife, two kids and dog and white fence. I mean, if that's if you see that as your primary role for you as a parent to make sure you sort of tick off those things for your child, you'll have a certain strategy to make sure that happens. But if you see yourself as somebody who's planted, as somebody who's waging war for the soul of your child, you'll have a different strategy. And so it makes it makes a lot of difference, parents, how you view not only the war that's being fought on your own soul, but the war that is fought on the soul of your child, whatever the age may be. So our first question is. Whether we really live in peacetime or wartime, and you'll have to answer that for yourself. Second observation, primary opponents in the war. And again, this would make a great sermon series, but I'll pick up the ones from the, uh, the text. The flesh, verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So one enemy, one one thing that we're fighting against is our own flesh. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. I, I beat my body and make it my slave. See, so your, your body is going to be enslaved to you or you're going to be enslaved to your body. Those are the only two options. 
Your body's going to have a craving. It's going to have a desire. It may even be a natural desire. And you're going to have to say, hey, I got to keep that right there. Or you're going to be enslaved to it. Every time it comes up, you're going to have to respond to that craving. So Paul says, I'm I'm beating my body. I'm making sure it's my slave and I'm not its slave. So that after I preach to others, imagine Paul saying this, I won't be disqualified myself. Jesus understood this bodily temptation. Matthew chapter four, he's in the wilderness. What's the first temptation? Oh, I know you're hungry. And I know you have the power to turn these stones into bread. Why don't you make sure that your physical body is satisfied? And so he has to resist that temptation. The second opponent is the world. First John two. I do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for everything in the world. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the father, but from the world. Just notice John's target. His target is not the world. His target is your love of the things of the world. It's different. See, the biggest problem isn't the culture. What's the biggest problem? My own heart. There are things out in this world that just happen to be out there. Money, sex, power. They're not all evil. What happens? My own human heart turns those things into evil things because I must have those things. I have these cravings. I have these sinful desires. And John's telling us you can't you can't love those things. You have to love God first. And Jesus understands that temptation. Matthew chapter four. The devil took Jesus to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands. Satan's temptation to Jesus to be spectacular, do it, do things to win great applause. Make sure you're being noticed. Jesus, broadcast yourself. Third opponent, first, the flesh, the world, your love of those things, your love of applause. Third opponent, Satan, first, Peter five, eight, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour, resist him. See, Peter's saying, if you're not alert, if you've if you've fallen into the enchanted belief that you're not at war, then you'll be easily devoured. It's not hard for Satan to devour somebody who's enchanted with the world. And he says, you've got to be alert. You've got to resist. You've got to fight. You've got to strive. You've got to agonize because you have somebody who's always wandering around and he's prowling like a lion. And you don't realize when he's up upon you until it's too late. And Jesus understands Satan's schemes. Matthew chapter four, again, in the wilderness. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. 
All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, resisting Satan. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Satan, I'm going to be consumed by something, but it's not going to be you. I'm going to be consumed by God. See, those are really the only choices. There aren't other things to be consumed by. You're either going to be consumed by the Lord or you're going to be consumed by the things of this world. And Jesus is resisting Satan, saying, no, I'm not going to be devoured by you, Satan, because I'm being devoured by the holy, righteous God. I'm being consumed by him and I don't have any space for you in my life. So please leave. First question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do you really think that you're in a war? One of the things I was reading this week is was um, by an, another author who said, um, quoting a general, the worst thing you can do in a, in a war is to think you're in a little war. You might say, oh, Paul, he's kind of on his soapbox today about war and fighting. But, you know, yeah, OK, I've got a few battles. You're enchanted. You're enchanted to believe that, you know, you just got a few little I've got a little war going on here, but mostly I'm OK. No, 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 no. You're in a war for your soul. Do you understand your opponents, the flesh, the world, Satan? Which which one is it? Which one's winning the battle right now in your life? Where do you need to to strengthen your army? Where do you need to to stand strong? Third weapons of our warfare. You know, this verse, Ephesians six, the whole picture of the soldier. In Ephesians six, Paul says to uh, the people of Ephesus, take the sword of the spirit, which is the Word of God and pray. The word of God and prayer. That's the sword. There's a lot of other things that you think of this. It's it's not it's not that complicated, really. It's the word of God and prayer. How do I know that's successful? Matthew chapter four. What did Jesus defeat Satan with? I mean, it would have been spectacular if he'd sent, he got and said, said, well, I'm going to just bring down a thousand angels to defeat you, Satan. Well, I can't do that. But he did something I can do. He can pray and he can use the word of God. And so the word of God, the prayer is what really helps us in our battle. John Piper says this life is war. That's not all it is, but it's always that. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to rig it up as a domestic intercom system in our houses, boats, cars, and recliners. Not to call in firepower for war with with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. You see, your habits of prayer... And what you pray for expose if you think you're in a wartime mentality or a peacetime mentality. You can tell that when you listen to somebody pray. Are you just calling in from the den? 
to the big man upstairs. Hey, more nachos. I got some problems down here. Can you just come down and sort of do these things? Is that the way you pray? Or is it a walkie talkie to the commander who's saying, I know you're under heavy attack. The way you pray, what you pray for exposes your mentality, a wartime or peacetime mentality. And let me end with this final thought. The captain, the captain of our soul. There's a pretty famous poem called Invictus. By William Henley. This also happened to be a movie. It's not related to the poem, per se, about uh, Nelson Mandela. And the word Invictus means unconquered. And in the last sort of the famous part of this poem, Henley writes this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a good line in a poem. This bad theology. Man, I don't want to be a captain of my soul. I mean, I don't mind being a soldier. But I've, I've got to have a different captain. I've got to have a captain who's going to get me there when I fall down and fail. That's the kind of captain I've got to have. I've got to have somebody who's really the, the captain of my soul. Yes, I'm really in charge of being a soldier. Yes, I'm really in charge of striving and fighting. Yes, I'm really in charge of agonizing and, and falling under the enchantment and having the pain wake me up. I'm, I'm moving in that direction. I'm charged, as Paul charges Timothy, to say, you've got to be this kind of person. I want to hear that, but I want to hear that underneath that I have a captain. Who's going to get my soul all the way home? Hebrews chapter 2, he is the captain of our salvation. And let me end with this quote from J.C. Ryle again. The Christian's fight is a good fight because it is fought with the best of results. No doubt it is a war in which there are tremendous struggles, agonizing conflicts and conflicts and fatigues. But no soldiers of Christ are ever lost. No soldiers of Christ are ever missing or left dead on the battlefield. The words of our great captain shall be found true of them which thou gavest me. I have lost none. Fear not. Fear not to go on fighting. No doubt you will often meet with fatigue and hard fighting. But let none of this move you. Greater is he that is in you that is that may be against you. Everlasting liberty or everlasting captivity are the alternatives before you. Choose liberty and fight to the last. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are. We are so grateful for the gospel. That you are the captain of our soul. And because we, we have our feet cemented in that truth, then we can really be a soldier and fight. I pray for my friends here who have maybe uh, given up the fight. Someone here. 
someone here that feels like they're dying on the battlefield and you've forgotten them. Fear not, you're not forgotten. So, someone here that has fallen underneath an enchantment. If they could just get through this semester. If they could just get through this situation, if they could just get a little bit more money in, in their paycheck, if they could just whatever it is. And today they've woken up from that enchantment. Someone here who's experiencing pain and doesn't understand what's the purpose. They may understand it may have woken them up from a greater, greater pain. For the person here who believes that they are the captain of their own soul. Help them to see that they're in a losing cause. Lord, we we are here, we're lifting up our soul, as we said in Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. It's battered. And bruised, wounded. And we ask for your mercy and grace, courage and healing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.